telling anything that's going on in your body. And I will listen to every detail and not get bored or mad or worried because I'm your doctor. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani is a medical doctor, certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor and fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders. And there's so much more in her bio. But the book that she wrote changed my life. And is as Dr. Voss, our guest medical co-host for the medical series that we're in now, says that this book can actually help not only me as a dietitian helping those with eating disorders it can help medical doctors but also the families and the patient themselves it's written in a way that everyone can understand so some of the things that she gives as nuggets today are things that she learned the hard way and if you're a medical provider looking to get your feet wet in this field you it's a must-have. So doctors aren't taught about their emotional contributions to patient outcome. And there was something that she said in here, oh, about narrative medicine. I did not know what that meant. But so I looked it up, narrative medicine, a medical approach that utilizes people's narratives in clinical practice, research, and education as a way to promote healing. In doing this, the narrative medicine aims not only to validate the experience of the patient, but also to encourage creativity and self-reflection in the physician. And you can tell in her writings, in her speaking, this is just how Dr. Gaudiani is, Dr. G. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Listen in for some of the nuggets that you can use as a physician in the field of eating disorders. Well, hello. Today we're here with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, Dr. G, as we like to call her. There are several of us here interviewing her, and we are all just excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Welcome, Dr. G. Like Beth said, totally fangirling over here. All of us are. So this is great. Just to warm us up, mountains or beach? Mountains. What what makes you choose mountains? I mean, I'm a Colorado girl. I have to go mountains. But I must say that when I when I go on vacation, I do really love playing in the ocean. So it's a tough one for me. It's a toss up. But my my life choices have led me to the mountains. Awesome. I'm a mountain girl too. That's what I would choose. Preferably a mountain next to a beach is what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Because I love sitting and talking and spending time and decompressing about the day over good food. I love hanging out with my family in the evening, which we always do over family dinner, which just feels like such a peaceful, joyful 
cap to the end of the day. That's what we're hearing lately is sometimes it's less about the food and more about the company, the conversations. I think that's so great. Yeah. And then the last icebreaker question for you is audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper book. Every time. <laughs> I am a voracious reader, but having been an English major, I nonetheless do not actually often read literature. I really love YA fantasy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on vacation, I can be a book a day kind of a girl. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned what you, you're as an English major, because a lot of our listeners are brand new to the field or still in school or have different levels of seasonings. It's the seasoned RD for the EDRD, but it's for all professionals. And so when we first learn of Dr. G, we all get starstruck. I'm just going to bring, I, 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 those are the reasons we ask these questions and we're going to bring you back to when you were brand new to the field and hopefully not too traumatizing to ask this, but pick a board exam or some kind of a, a momentous, like in your career moment and tell us about that day. Mm, sure. Before my first anatomy exam in med school, I was nauseated for about five days in advance. And I don't typically somatize, you know, I I have the flutters that everybody gets, but I'm not traditionally a somatizer. And I thought, you know, I can't be pregnant and I don't think I'm sick. And then maybe two nights before the exam, I had a glass of wine and the nausea went away and I went, Oh, (laughs) there's only one kind of nausea that goes away with a glass of wine. (laughs) This is totally my anxiety. And it did not make it feel any better, but it did help me to know what was likely going on in my body. And of course, my patients and I talk about all the time how even when the right diagnosis doesn't ameliorate the symptom, it can make your body feel less chaotic and more knowable, and it opens up the opportunity for compassion. So I gritted it through the anatomy exam. I just barely passed, which was sort of the story of my first two years of medical school. But the second I walked out of that room, the nausea was gone. Oh, wow. Do you, was that a paper and pencil test or was it a computer test? It was a paper, pencil, and cadaver test. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Extra intense throwing the cadaver in there. Yeah. It was. And it turns out that I'm still really not any better at anatomy now than I was then. You know, we all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. It's so important for those just starting out in the field to know you don't have to be good at all the things Mm -hmm. in order to end up finding what really speaks to you and makes your soul sing and allows you to help others. Which is why we're grateful to have what your, your skills and your love is your passion is the body mind connection. You know, you knew with the wine and that, how it could relax you and you can bring that to your, your clients. And just that idea of not, even if the diagnosis isn't exact, it can help reduce the chaotic feeling in the body. Well, how did you get into the field of eating disorders? You know, I am the oldest of three girls, and when I went off to college, I was an English major and a pre-med. I went to med school in the same city I had gone to college in, and my sister, when she arrived at college, who has been very generous and brave and allowing me to share some of her story, when she arrived in Boston, she had developed an eating disorder. 
And I didn't know anything about them except that I loved her unconditionally and suspected that would not be sufficient. And she ultimately had an eating disorder for many years. She's now fully recovered. And, and her seeing her struggle and triumph and struggle and triumph as her sister really brought that into my heart. And at the same time, I was developing my identity as a feminist and as somebody who really was interested in narrative medicine and in caring for the whole person and in trying to find a way to have a more connected relationship with my patients so that they could bring me the story of their bodies and I could bring to them my knowledge of Western medicine. And somehow we might find a language together that would make my recommendations feel appropriate and manageable in the context of their unique lives. But I had no idea that I would do this as a field. I became an internist. I trained back East and then came to Denver and just sort of accidentally had the opportunity to help grow and run the top hospital program for critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa in the US. And I mean, that was it. As soon as I met patients with eating disorders, I was like, these are my people. I have many of the stereotypical personality traits associated with those who get eating disorders. So I was like, oh, you know, I I see you. And I love that I could take care of the whole person while also having a subspecialty. And I, I saw from some from early on how poorly they were treated. Yes, Dr. Voss. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I, great. But, but I just, I wanted to ask, because I know you started at the center and then you went off to create your own practice. And so I'm curious to know what prompted that. Was it more of that need for that connection in that long-term sense or was there something else going on? That's such a lovely question. I had a great time in my former practice and I was super dedicated and loyal to my team and my patients. But I did realize that as I fell in love with my patients for their typically two week hospitalization and then lost track of them as they usually went on to programs, I wanted to, I wanted to be part of all the chapters. You know, I am such a narrative minded person And I wanted to be there for the terrible times and the exciting times, for the crises and the resolutions. And I wanted that longer term relationship. So that was one of the big motivations for me to open my own outpatient practice instead of staying in the hospital. And then the other was that I was pretty sure, although really I was mostly taking care of of adults with anorexia nervosa, that people of all genders, ages, and body shapes and sizes were also getting inadequate, harmful medical care for the most part in their communities. And I hoped to be an outpatient internist who could work in loving combination with therapists and dietitians in patients' local towns, and that I could actually start to repair the relationship with doctors and improve their medical outcomes. And that really was the thing for me. And it turned out that was true. I feel like I have a hundred questions going off of what you just said, but one little piece you just mentioned with the doctors and kind of reconnecting them. How, how has that looked trying to provide education on, you know, like weight bias and topics such as that? Well, it depends on whom I'm trying to give the education to (laughs) when I'm talking to my patients, they know they have been the the victims of a medical system 
that is so weight stigmatizing and so orthorexic and diet culture focused. So, you know, everyone is harmed, no matter what their body size, the people who are in underweight bodies are often praised and asked what their secret is in, in medical settings, which profoundly reinforces the eating disorder message, you're not sick enough. Those who are in so-called sort of unremarkable, normal-sized bodies are utterly missed because the stereotype is that only people in thinner bodies could possibly have an eating disorder. And so they're told, you must not be telling me the truth about your behaviors. It mustn't be that bad. Your weight is stable. And then, you know, don't even get me started on folks in larger bodies who are categorically, systematically horrifically harmed by the medical system and often instructed to engage in behaviors that we understand to be completely harmful and damaging psychologically and medically in those with anorexia nervosa. Then again, when it comes to educating doctors, they're not so interested in hearing this. (laughs) And so I just want to validate those who are listening who may not be a physician when they're like, oh my gosh, is this about the hierarchy of medicine that people aren't respecting me and aren't listening to me? Well, yes, in part, of course, but also there's just not enough interest and and curiosity. I mean, I'm so grateful for Dr. Voss, but there's just not enough medical doctors who want to say, I wonder if I've been causing harm all these years, as I did. I wonder if I might think about this in a really different way. Yeah. So you were involved, and I don't know the status of it, but some research on no weight medical care. Is there anything you can share with us about that? You mentioned something during the ERC conference last year. Yeah, I would love to. (laughs) This is a great opportunity to be super vulnerable and talk about how slow I am on academic publishing. (laughs) So pretty much give me the opportunity to do a short video or a lecture or a blog, even a book any day of the week. But when it comes to academic publishing, something happens in my brain and I just freeze. So I have this wonderful paper that I'm writing with Carmen Cool and Aaron Flores. I have the data. It is analyzed. I just need to write the thing. But I have had the opportunity to talk about it some, which begins to share its impact. And I I resolve to everybody listening, I will write it and get it out into the world. Here's the situation. I have been a passionate, dedicated, health at every size, haze, weight-inclusive provider since I opened the clinic. At least that was the theory. I had, turns out I had to do a lot of unlearning and a lot of learning for how to actually provide that care. And I continue to learn every week and make mistakes and improve. But in that context, I ended up starting to see a number of individuals, typically who had a history of so-called atypical anorexia nervosa. And I say so-called because anorexia is anorexia no matter what size body you're in. And it shows the stigma of the DSM-5 to call it different names. So I'm just gonna call it anorexia from now on. But who had been failed by the Western medical system and had in desperation sought help from an online scam run by a non-medical provider that essentially said you have to eat a huge number of calories well above your appetite every single day, and you may never move a muscle. And yes, of course, you're going to gain weight, and that's part of your recovery. And if you do it right, it's all going to settle out. 
And if you protest or are fearful or question, you're, you're excommunicated from the community. So it's quite a harmful thing. And a number of those patients who tried very dedicatedly to do everything they were asked to do ended up actually getting quite medically ill from that. And a number of them started to come to me. So between that population of patients and those with plain old-fashioned binge eating, I ended up getting a group of about 13 adults who presented to me whose weight I never checked. I don't care. It's not a measure of health. And in concert with a Hayes-informed dietitian and a Hayes-informed therapist for the majority of patients, wherever they came from around the United States, I said, we're going to look at a completely weight-inclusive perspective here. We're never going to follow weights, although hold space with compassion for your awareness of your loss of body privilege in our society. I'm never going to restrict your food. In fact, anytime you even think of it, I'm going to remind you it's it's a no-no. Every food is on, is, is on the table. Eat beautifully, eat plentifully, eat throughout the day. Begin moving in ways that honor your goals and your abilities, but no pressure and certainly not in a compensatory mechanism or in any intention to change your body. And let's just see how you go. Because I am committed to the fact that that's the only way towards health for almost anybody to the extent that, that those elements can contribute to health. And what I saw was at the beginning of our sessions, most of the patients had type two diabetes. Some of them had quite significant insulin resistance, you know, a hundred plus units a day of insulin. Many of them had sleep apnea, steatohepatitis, uh, for the women patients, which made up the majority of the panel. Most of them weren't getting regular periods and without ever focusing on weight at all, we did just what I talked about and the data were so beautiful coming out of that. And before I share the data, I want to mention, I'm really interested and challenged by the notion of healthism right now. This is my learning edge. Healthism broadly means the imposition of ideas of what healthy is, usually from a provider onto an individual. Like clearly you would want health, and clearly that's attainable to you. And clearly these are the metrics you'd want. Well, oftentimes that's not the case. So as I'm about to list how folks did, I want to be very clear that I identify my own westernized tendency to think that fewer diagnoses and fewer medications must be better. That's not necessarily the case for everybody. But we do know that these patients' quality of life improved through questionnaires. So this isn't purely focused on sort of numbers. And again, never were weights checked. But over the course of a year, every single person who had insulin-dependent diabetes completely resolved their diabetes. It went away. Wow. And people's sleep improved, their quality of life, their functional status, their sense of weight stigma, their, their questionnaires about eating disorder thinking, you know, because it would be easy for a reviewer of this future potential article to say, oh, well, of course they all got better. Clearly they must've gone back into their anorexia and that's why everything turned around. Nope. Mm. But everybody improved medically. 
without ever checking a weight, without ever telling them to limit calories. So I would think as a general doctor listening to this podcast, I would be flipping out right now because that's undoing everything we've been taught, right? We're supposed to check the weight every single time. And we've been given this message that weight determines health, not the other way around, unfortunately. So I would ask you, if you weren't following weight, I'd be sitting here going, what were you following? How did you know they were going on the right track? I was following how they said they felt. And of course I was checking labs and as they're in in the case of diabetes, as they were like, um, Dr. G I'm getting a little low on my sugars. I was like, all right, let's pull back more insulin. Okay. Let's pull back. Oh, oh, you're actually done with insulin now. Okay. You know, and, and I should be clear that this was in a population of folks who were significantly binge eating prior to coming to me. It has not been replicated in people who have had weight cycling throughout their entire life, where usually a doctor, sometimes a family member has put people who were just naturally meant to be in somewhat larger bodies on a diet from childhood and caused a cascade of physiologic changes. But it's really clear to me, since we don't have an alternative solution that is appropriate psychologically and medically, that a weight-inclusive perspective is the only thing to do. You know, all of the studies that say, well, we tried putting these patients on a low-fat diet or a high-carb diet or this and that, you know, everybody gets a little better at first and then everybody doesn't sustain improvements in health and wellness and vitality. So that doesn't work. And I'm super convinced it's harmful because causing people to diet physiologically sets off in our brains a cascade of emotional and medical changes that preserve our weight, help us increase our weight a little bit if we happen to have lost any and make us obsessed with the foods that are being restricted because that is the survival mechanism that allowed human beings to survive evolution. So we know that diets don't work, except maybe briefly in the short term. And then everyone feels energized and thrilled and morally superior because that's about body privilege in our society. But in the final analysis, the best way to be well is to nourish throughout the day abundantly, adequately, rest and move according to joy and interest. I like that you said when people do lose weight for that short time, whatever that might be, that they're feeling so great, that feeling they're experiencing is the body positivity. Cause I find that's something I run across all the time with patients I work with is, well, I feel so much better when I'm X pounds less. And so knowing that piece brings a lot of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Our society has linked moral superiority, effectiveness, appealingness, much less the absence of aggressions and microaggressions to a thinner body. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know this. And when I think about teenagers entering their more adult bodies, no one is more sensitive to power dynamics than teenagers are. So, you know, they know, they know that when somebody loses weight, they get a bunch of attention and they get a bunch of positive feedback regardless of the the baseline weight. So these are some of the structural things we have to identify, name, 
and resist in our clinical practices and then in what comes out of our own mouths with our friends, with our children, with our partners. We all have the power to start decontaminating the diet culture air that all of us breathe. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm going to use the term atypical anorexia just for a second, because when, and Dr. Voss, you asked a great question, like, how do you know medically? And I've worked with you long enough to know that people will say, well, what weight are they supposed to be? And I say, I rely on the medical doctor because they're checking the coolness of the fingertips all the way up to the wrist and, and beyond and, and orthostatic changes and heart rate or, you know, bradycardia and, and nutrition. So none of that has to do with weight. And so the atypical anorexia, I was um, kind of several years ago brought into the awareness of that with um, an article that had two separate case studies of teenagers who had been living in larger bodies and then got into this whole system. Well, and then we had several, and I think any of you listening probably has this, this type of patient in your practice where someone loses a tremendous amount of weight and their blood pressure is still high. Go figure. It's the genetic predisposition to high hypertension. Even though your paper is not out, we all have your book too sick enough. I say we all have it. If you don't have it, you need to have it. And I have bought several copies just to use as business cards for primary care doctors to help them have a reference for anything that I might be asking them to consider related to eating disorders. And the bring me the story of their bodies that you mentioned and the stereotypical personality traits that you had, Dr. G., this comes out in your book as a story. Mm. And that's what I think that I've been a dietitian in this field for almost 30 years. And when sick enough finally came out, it was like, thankfully we have a medical person backing up all of the things that we've known, listening to our clients' body stories. What I love about not, not to go on a tangent, but we're going to go on a tangent because it's amazing. <laughs> but what I love about sick enough is that it's so well written that it, it appeals to everybody. It's amazing how you're able to put in enough information where general pediatricians or general internists can get information. Me as a specialty eating disorder physician can get information, but so can the patient and the parents and the family members. Everyone gets something out of that book. And that's why I think it is, I love it. And I think it is such an amazing collection to anybody's repertoire. So we thank you very much for putting that out there in such a sensitive way. Mm, that's just incredible to hear. I'm so grateful for that feedback. So my question is, do you have another one coming? <laughs> Part two. I actually will probably write a second edition next year. I'll reorganize it in key ways. I'll probably highlight and, and draw out certain topics that I've learned more about. It was the wrong thing to include people in larger bodies in the same section as binge eating disorder. And I understand that now. I think I'll probably lead off with weight stigma because it's relevant to everybody. And I'll, I'll add and expand certain pieces. So I do hope to bring more to the world. And, you know, I'm always blogging. So even before I put something in a whole compilation, I try to bring 
thoughts of the moment and learnings of the moment to my blog work, which at least people can take a peek at before I get my act together on. Yeah. We need to point people to that. And like you said, Dr. Voss, about the patients and the providers get a lot from the book. And by the way, Sick Enough is a required reading in my elective, my master's elective course that starts in the fall. But you have medical minutes and blogs. So tell us about that. I mean, there's so many topics on the medical minutes that it just takes one minute. You send someone there and they get to hear you, a medical doctor, describing this. Oh, thanks. You know, one of the pillars that I thought of with my team as we developed the clinic was not only to give great direct patient care, but to really try to uplift the quality of medical care for people with eating disorders of all genders, ages, body shapes, and sizes across the country, maybe even across the world. And in order to do that, I realized that I needed to have ways of sharing my knowledge in in a manner that felt respectful, engaging, and understandable. And, you know, like all I do day in and day out as I see my patients is try to think about ways to make complicated medical topics make sense and be contextualized within a person's unique story and and sort of self-comprehension. So I thought, you know, let me make these little medical minutes that are just a piece of information that I know about and might be like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing at all. This gives me an avenue to, you know, research and go down and learn more. You know, I want to, if ever possible, to validate and highlight people's experiences in their bodies as they've told it to me, and then try to bring some medical sense to it with hope that it can be made better. So the medical minutes are all about that. And the blogs, which again, in a vulnerable moment, I'll just say, I really decreased during COVID because things got really busy clinically. And I had to protect myself in my role as a wife and mom and individual and friend while doing that work. And so I just had to say no to some things I was passionate about. And that's okay. But I do love to blog and I try to write in a way, again, that I say it with the patient because I want to bring what I'm learning to a far larger group of practitioners and individuals than I'll ever have the chance to directly interact with. Well, and I think something else about your blog is that the way you describe things makes sense. Like you use these kind of even pop culture words and we're more able to relate to them. And I'm so glad that we're talking about all of your resources. Cause that's what I want this podcast to bring too. is professionals like you who have so many killer resources and we're not utilizing them enough, but back to your blog, you wrote one recently about your body and gaslighting. And so maybe that's like one of those pop culture phrases, but if you could even just touch on that for a second. I would love to. Many people know, but some may not, that gaslighting refers to a situation in which a person in power undermines another person's lived experience or observations and does so in order to harm or reassert the power dynamic over that other person. And it comes from an old movie in which this evil guy 
is living with a woman and she, and he's deliberately flickering the gas lights in the house. And she's like, I see flickering lights. And he's like, no, you don't, you're crazy. And, and it's, you know, really makes her despair. So that's what gaslighting comes from. Oh my gosh, doctors do this all the time to patients. If a patient's lived experience does not immediately fall within something that makes sense or is measurable to the practitioner. In a system that's broken, you know, I have the incredible luxury of seeing patients over long periods of time. And, you know, it is not, my, my care is not accessible to nearly as many people as I would wish it could be. But, you know, the average doctor who's seeing somebody in an eight minute quick session, hears somebody say, you know, doc, my stomach hurts so much and I'm so bloated and it makes me so nauseated to eat. that I'm really having a hard time eating my meal plan, even on the days that I feel motivated and I can resist my anorexia voice. Let's say that that patient has had an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy and a gastric emptying study and all the measurable stuff is normal. It's not uncommon for that physician who doesn't get psychological supervision, which I now realize is such a mistake. All of the therapeutic fields and dietitian fields get supervision. We don't. So the doctor doesn't have guidance to sit with the patient's lived experience, to sit with their own type A harm avoidant personality and say, it's really hard for me to watch you suffer. I am at a loss for exactly what to do next, but I believe you, this is real. It is clearly having a huge impact on your life. And I'm gonna try to do more reading or refer you to somebody who might be able to help you more. Instead, the doctor says, you know, it looks like it's just IBS. You're a pretty high strung person. Sorry, I can't do anything. But you know that just, anytime we use the word just, by definition, we are oversimplifying a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. And so somebody with an eating disorder leaves that encounter. And again, the mean eating disorder voice is reinforced. There's nothing wrong with you. You shouldn't have even complained. Why would you bring this to someone's attention? Why couldn't you just suck it up and deal with this? you should feel ashamed. Mm. So that's where the gaslighting ties into the ED voice and keeps people sick or makes them sicker. Okay. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I just, I remember that in one of your other lectures from a while ago, you really said, sometimes I don't have all the answers, but what I do have is the ability to bear witness. And that has really stuck with me. And so thinking about the pediatric population, they are often very somatic in their presentations appropriately. And the word just, I reminded me of the word chronic or functional in my field and how that label immediately changes people's opinions. And so one of the things that you have preached that I've really brought into my practice and found helpful is that ability to say, I don't have all the answers, but I do hear you and I will stand by you and we will walk through this together. And that in itself is so powerful. I love that. That is so powerful. And it's not, it's not just nice. It actually carries a power that I think 
particularly with my adult patients, lies in the fact that their family members, loved ones, and friends may be tired, burnt out, and scared Mm -hmm. over how the suffering has continued. So for them to, to speak their lived experience and be less lonely in it can cause an emotional reaction in the people who are meant to be their closest support structure. By contrast, what I say is, I both love you and I'm not your family. So you can tell me anything that's going on in your body and you can tell me how completely shitty this feels. And I will listen to every detail and not get bored or mad or worried because I'm your doctor. And that just feels like such a privileged, time-honored position to be in. I'll also add, because you made me think of it, that one of my favoriteest, just to give you a little medical pearl to the folks listening, new opportunities or tools to use for kids and adults who have that really somatic tummy pain. You know, anytime they get anxious, they get nauseated, they get full, they get tummy aches. It turns out that abdominal wall dysfunction is everything. So what does that mean? Well, our diaphragms are supposed to stretch out with a deep belly breath and then curl back up as we exhale. And our ribs are supposed to expand and fall. And our core muscles are supposed to rise and fall with a big breath. But if you're really tense and worried, you're going to tighten up all those muscles and you're not going to take deep breaths. And you're in a society that doesn't want people's tummies to stick out. So you might be particularly conscious of holding in your tummy. Over time, that becomes myofascial tension. It actually becomes sort of scarred into place so that your upper core muscles and low performing diet diaphragm act like a corset squeezing your stomach from externally. Not to mention that we don't get the benefit of the great big deep breaths that that trigger our parasympathetic or relaxation system. So there is something to do for these little peanuts of all ages when they have those symptoms and there's not a medical cause, which is get them to a physical therapist who specializes, often it'll be in pelvic floor PT, but we're not talking about the pelvic floor here. We're talking about the tummy. And in the course of learning breathing work and getting massage to do myofascial release, their tummy doesn't hurt. Their nausea goes away. They remember to take deep breaths, their constipation and bloating ease. And all you've done is physical therapy. Mm. Wow. Okay. So we are definitely going to have to have a part two and a part five and a part (laughs) 200 because our time is already coming short. But I, before Abby asks her last questions and then how to get a hold of you, you mentioned something about psychological supervision for doctors. Can you tell us more about that? Well, you know, Dr. Voss and I went through a medical training system where you see one, do one, teach one. And, you know, that suggests that by the time you're involved in something for the third time, you're the leader, don't be vulnerable, 
Fake Pass it till you on make the it. knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fake it till you make it. Exactly. It's very alarming to realize that that's the system that we were trained in. And, you know, I was a chief resident. I love teaching. I love that sort of nurturing thing. It will shock no one. But then when I was an attending physician, you're just expected to know and do and oftentimes teach. What there's not room for, although increasingly institutions are doing something called Schwartz rounds, which specifically focus on the emotional implications of a, of a medical experience as a caretaker, is we're not really taught how we bring in our own psychological underpinnings to the care we provide. Medicine silos psychological and medical so thoroughly that we're rarely asked if there's a hard outcome you know, what do you think you brought into that emotionally that contributed to it not being optimal? And now that there's been a bad outcome, how are you processing that? And how might you learn in your soul? What are the things you bring? For instance, you know, and being in this field and being so lucky to be surrounded by wonderful dietitians and therapists, and now my own amazing team at the Gaudiani Clinic, I've learned to slow down and really think about my own emotional bring. I know I can go too fast. I know when I get worried, I can get stern with my patients. I know that when I get busy, I can try to check things off and not remember that, you know, it always gets done. And sometimes when you go too fast, you miss listening. You miss the message. You miss hearing the emotional import. So, I get amazing psychological supervision from my own team here of brilliant women that I work with and from the community I'm fortunate enough to work professionally with, but doctors don't generally. Uh, Right. So you also provide some supervision for physicians? Yes. I, by the time this comes out, I will be providing a physician supervision group that really seeks to welcome cases of those with eating disorders and not only go through, hey, how can we think about this? How can we diagnose this? How can we manage this better? But how is this affecting you? Because transference and countertransference is relevant to doctors as well. We're just not given the words for it. That is so great because therapists uh, is are really into supervision. I feel like as dietitians, we're just getting into supervision and advocating more for it. And so now for physicians to be in the mix, that's Mm -hmm. incredible. And what, and what a lucky individual to have you as a supervisor. My goodness. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) So where can people get a hold of you? If you have an Instagram, definitely your website. Totally. So our website is www.gaudianiclinic.com, which is G-A-U- D-I-A-N-I clinic.com. We have on there all the videos, all the blogs, all the podcasts I've ever done and a bunch of other resources. In addition, our Insta, our Facebook, our Twitter is Gaudiani Clinic. And I have a brilliant partner and she's seeing the vast majority of our new cases now because my panel is quite full. And we continue to grow. This is a really thoughtful, tightly connected team that handpicks amazing practitioners to be a part of what we do. You know, I I welcome 
anybody who's interested and wants resources to check out what my amazing director of marketing and outreach, Megan, has curated with Dr. Robbins and my and our nurse Abby's help. And I just want to highlight one more time for everybody listening, sick enough, Dr. G's book, you <laughs> have to, have to, have to read. It's great. Yes. It's actually getting it's actually getting translated right now into Japanese and Russian, and we have a proposal in to translate it into Spanish. So that's so oh, exciting! Oh my goodness! And then your second edition will come out, and we'll have to do exactly. it again, <laughs> which is fine with me. I'll buy the second edition right away. Awesome. Can I just ask a follow up to getting a hold of you? So, as a physician, if I have a patient that I think might benefit from your services, what do I do? Thank you so much. So the first thing to do is. The practitioner themselves or the patient can look at our website. All of our fees are transparently put on there from the very get-go and sort of our system and how we work. And then if someone's like, yeah, you know, I think this is really important for me, they just call the clinic and they'll talk to my Camille and get a, a verbal intake scheduled with one of our team members. And we've just got a really nice process. Typically somebody who calls up can be seen as a new patient virtually or in person because we're licensed all over the U.S., Within a couple of weeks of that initial call, we talk to their team, we get their records, and then we become the quarterback um, in a non-hierarchical way, but sort of just in an ownership way of keeping track of communication and trajectory and, and all of those fun things. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been awesome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've loved these thoughtful questions and I'm so grateful for your collective input and, and service to this field. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.